and welcome to The Intersection, which is season two of the Richmond Racial Equity Essays podcast, Racial Equity in Richmond. I am your host, Ebony Walden, urban planner, equity consultant, and creator of the Richmond Racial Equity Essays. Last season, we had guests talk about their vision for racial equity in Richmond specifically, and how do we get there? This season, we have guests from various intersections of racial justice and their particular work from around the country. And we're specifically asking the questions of what now, what next, post-pandemic, post-protest, and three years after the tragic murder of George Floyd. Today, we are meeting at the intersection of systemic racism and housing with Heather Raspberry of HAND, which is Housing Association of Nonprofit Developers. And although Han is based in uh, DC, they are a target market, I believe from Baltimore to Richmond. And so I'll ask Heather to quickly introduce herself. Like, tell us about you, where you're from, what's the work you do. And I ask everybody, just cause I like to get to know people's stories a little bit. What is a pivotal moment that brought you to this work? So name, where you're from, kind of work you do and what brought you to the work? Well, good afternoon, and thanks for having me on the show today, Ebony. Um, I'm Heather Raspberry and have the uh, privilege of serving as the executive director of HAND. Uh, We are a nonprofit membership collective that's comprised of 500 plus organizations working in government, the private sector, and social sectors that are all aligned around the goal to develop and preserve affordable housing in the capital region. So as you referenced in my introduction, we have members that are working from Baltimore, DC, and all the way far south as Richmond. And those groups look like nonprofit and for-profit developers, service providers, universities, uh, government agencies, tech architects, law firms, community developers, Everybody <laughs> in the community development takes all of us to do work. Yes, yes. Yeah, so. You got to design. You got to build right. them, right? right? You got to have community around yeah. them. And how we execute on the mission is through um, we do about fifty training and capacity building activities a year that are um, wow. grounding our members and everything from affordable housing finance to racial equity. Uh, We have a number of affinity groups that, you know, support our asset managers and CEOs, our emerging leaders. Uh, So lots of training and education just to keep members' skills fresh and relevant to all of the things that we're experiencing in the space right now. Um, And then we also have a um, strong advocacy and policy platform Hmm. that really uplifts a lot of the challenges that we see in the space. And we're working to hold our elected officials and ourselves accountable to how we work to disrupt the systems that we know are vicious and working as intended and um, to build our capacity in those areas as well. So that's a little bit of what we do. So tell me about what brought you to this work? Was there a pivotal moment an experience or something that you can look back and say Mm -hmm. that really started my work and led me to where I am today? So I would say kind of what brought me to the space. I 
graduated from, I'm originally from uh, Indiana, and mm. I went to the great Hampton University there in Hampton. Okay. Virginia. That's how you got to Virginia. Okay, right. That's you got so to I moved here. I actually went back home right after graduation, and I was working on a, a mayoral campaign. They won the campaign. I was working as a campaign coordinator and offered me a job, but I wanted to move to D.C. You know, we mm-hmm. used to come and party in D.C., frankly, <laughs> I'm sure. when I was at Hampton and a lot of people. To Howard's homecoming. <laughs> listen, to all, all of it, to all of it. After a couple of years in Hampton, you're like, we got to get out. You know, you start coming and venturing out on the weekends. Um so I wanted to move to D.C. I loved, especially at that time, uh, D.C. was Chocolate City. And so it was, you know, amazing just to be able to see the Black leadership working across all of the spaces. And that was very inspiring to me. D.C. looks a little different now. You know, oftentimes we call oh, yeah. it Luka City. But nonetheless, <laughs> that's what... It's gentrification city now. Right. So, yeah, I came here... And I had a job working at a federal government agency. I was working as a speech writer or the secretary. And, you know, that was what got me here because <laughs> I needed a job. Um, but very early on, I realized I wanted to be working in a space where I could feel my impacts. I came from a family that always worked um, in the civic space. Um, had a very, you know, unique experience living in Southern Indiana. I was always um, a minority child in the classroom, one of a few. And so that kind of, you know, pushed me into wanting to go to an HBCU, wanting to live in a city where I saw people that looked like me. Um, But then I had a mother and a father that just worked. They always kind of worked at the intersection of social justice, even though, um, you know, my mother was a teacher and father was an insurance agent, but there was always that type of activity happening in the household. And um, I knew that I needed to be able to pay the bills, but I just remember calling my parents like, this is not it. (laughs) And uh, I've got to figure out something else. And so I actually quit my job. Uh, so that I could have time to really hone in on what mm. the next steps. Yeah, okay. Crazy. I love Crazy. That. But I was working at Macy's and bartending at the same time because they were never okay. going to be able to afford it. And I was like, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And so, and I did. I ended up landing a position at DC Housing Authority. Housing. Wow. It felt, it felt right to me. I knew that that was the stabilizer for families. Um, We had done a lot of work in affordable housing, like I said, growing up um, back home with my church and um, a lot of the sororities and different civic groups always work across, you know, kind of the intersection in those spaces. So I started off with the housing authority and um, had, you know, even going into that role because you're young. I was like, oh, another government job. But the director at that time, you know, said to me, listen, you could be really good in this position. It was their director of community engagement. And um, but I know that you I had said in the interview, I really want to get closer to the work policy in particular. 
He said, but, mm, get proximity. Yeah. And he said, come on, come on over and I'll make sure I introduce you to all of the people in the space. And he held his promise. You know, I was there for two years and he ended up um, introducing me to um, Bob Coleman, uh, was running the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development. Oh, okay. They do, funny enough, very similar work to HAND. I was about to say, it sounds like similar to mm-hmm. what HAND does. But they, you know, they are very um, only focused on the district and HAND has that, uh, you know, region. Uh, larger mm-hmm. footprint. So let's get into it about HAND. So I think we must have met about two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure the connection, but I was doing... The, I was just finishing up the first edition and I said, oh, I'm going to have you on my podcast. And I said that because hand was doing work around racial mm-hmm. equity mm-hmm. before it was a thing or before right. it became sexy, I right. guess, in the larger public arena. So tell me why you all felt it was important to do that work and what did it look like? Yeah. What has it looked like well, over time? Yeah, this this was like 2018. We were in the process of going through a street strategic alignment, and you know, you any kind of strategic planning process it starts with you the interviews with your stakeholders. So in our case, it was our members. Uh, lots of conversations with staff and board, and you know, there was this what kept coming up was taking things to the next level. And it's like, what does that mean? You know, especially as the executive director, you want a plan that really a is going to help you in guiding the work. But, you know, if you're um, lucky, something that can be impactful. And so I, you know, said at the time, listen, we give a lot of credit, you know, you come to these trade associations, if you will, and there's always awards programs and, you know, you're lifting up these members. And I think that work is uh, good as well. But I said, we're constantly patting ourselves on the back for the number of units we've developed and groundbreakings we're hosting. Uh, but we're not really talking about the real challenges. And frankly, are the communities, do they look better? Are mm, the individuals yeah. who live there are they truly thriving? Right, their lives are changed, yeah. Right, so it felt like we were doing more of addressing symptoms of inequity and not really looking to change and disrupt these systems mm-hmm. that frankly are, were working as intended. And so we didn't really have the language there, but began to work with a number of partners across the space that even though we weren't talking about this work publicly, you start to build these alignments with groups, your little brain trust, right? That, mm-hmm. hey, here we are at the association of the grant makers. This is the association of the developers and talking to the people that where you can find some alignment. And, and out of that, you know, came this strategic alignment that we approved and it said that we were going to center racial equity mm-hmm. uh, in all that we do. So not just, of course, our programs and in our policy work, but even internally, our processes, our procedures. And, and a lot of that 
you know, to the credit of our board and our staff, we were doing that work already. You know, you Mm. hired a black woman to run this organization. So when I'm hiring people or when I'm going and checking vendors to support us in the work that we're doing, organically, you are prioritizing BIPOC vendors. (laughs) You know, you want to work with folks that look like you, that support the work that you do, that are aligned around this mission. And so you looked up and we had, we had, we didn't need a funder to tell us in a grant that you needed to have a diverse board. We had that. Right. We had, um, you know, operations and proceed. We just formalized it, frankly, what we were already doing. And then for the programming and the policy, that was where the journey really shifted because it was no longer going to be, when it comes to our training and capacity building activities, a lot of what not sets us apart, but really makes it good, solid training that you walk away with and feel like you have new skills to take with you. Mm-hmm. Is we're uplifting what works in the space. We use our members. They work with us in planning the sessions and also thinking about the agendas. But now it's no longer just, this is how you do a you know tax credit development in this particular jurisdiction. It's now really thinking about what's the impacts yep. of this type of housing? Who is it that we're here to serve? If we want to be more impactful, what does that look like? You know, then you start talking about racial equity lenses. And on the policy side, frankly, our board did not, they were hesitant that we could really engage into advocacy and policy. Given that we have this cross-sector membership, you're not going to see banks showing up at the Wilson. Right. How how disruptive are they going to be, right? Right. So it's like, how does that work? But I said, you know, I think if you continue building alignment around the goal, right? It's it's one single goal and how a bank is going to show up may look different from a nonprofit, might look different from the architect. But if you know everyone has a role to play and working to disrupt this system, then we can get there. We can get there. And we did with um, our housing educator tool is what guides all of the policy and advocacy work. And there's roles for philanthropy to play. There's roles for private sector, for government. Uh, We actually have an entire tool that is holding everyone accountable to these goals of not just developing more affordable housing, but really being thoughtful about how much affordable housing do you need in each one of these jurisdictions and going even further and breaking that out into income bands because housing can always right, you can say affordable housing and it's basically people affordable to who right, right. it's not getting the deep and get into the the folks that are deep into generational right. poverty and it's not sort That's of breaking right. those barriers right and That's it sometimes right. can be like you know sometimes here when people are just getting into their careers they qualify for affordable housing and you look around and the folks that are going to be doctors making hundreds of thousands of dollars, but of course they're not now, are part of, and as they should be, right? Everybody needs affordable housing, but making sure you're really getting to those who are most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. They need, yeah, they need so we vulnerable. now have the data that says, like, based upon who's moving to this area, who currently lives there, this is how much housing that you need. You have jurisdictions that are adopting 
these targets. And it's not just the targets themselves and developing housing for those income bands, but we, you know, have that compared to the policies and the investments that are going to have to be made if you want to be serious in meeting those goals. And then on top of that, the icing on the cake is that it's grounded in racial equity. Mm -hmm. So if we want to ensure the impact is felt for our black and brown communities, then what does that look like? You know, that's even brought us to a place to now we're talking about affordable home ownership. You know, when you talk about affordable housing and oftentimes the groups that are doing it, it's multifamily. And that's by Mm. and large because of the tools that exist that allow for us to develop multifamily housing at affordable levels. But now we're having conversations about, well, how can we create those same type of tools and mechanisms and policies that support uh, everyone, right? Everyone that needs this housing, but for to support communities and becoming homeowners and building wealth. Yeah, I think homeownership, housing is foundational to have stability, right? For a thriving life. If you don't have housing or safe or affordable quality housing, then your life is not going to be stable and for you to thrive emotionally, economically in your family. And then we also know that owning a home is also one of the cornerstones of closing the racial wealth gap, right? Or, Or one of them is saying, People who own houses tend to, that's an important part of their wealth, mm-hmm. right? And so I think Absolutely. getting more black and brown people to own housing is important. But you said a couple of things, and I was wondering if you can give an example. So I, because sometimes people think of racial equity and they're like, yeah, it's a nice bud words, but I don't know practically what that means. So you talked about, I'm just going to highlight what I heard, changing mm-hmm. the internal policies at your organization. It sounds like around the board, hiring maybe mm-hmm. others. You talked mm-hmm. about the way you partner is mm-hmm. differently. Um, mm-hmm. ve- I mean, vendors, you talked about... Um, how you allocate resources and where those resources are going. Mm-hmm. You talked about the data piece being an important so you can mm-hmm. track. And basically inequity is, is basically there's a differential impact on, on a particular mm-hmm. group of people. Racial inequity would be a differential impact on black and brown folks. Um, so you talked about the data piece um, and then the policy piece. Could you maybe take one internal example and then one kind of in the, ecosphere of like what specifically, like what policy did y'all come up with or change for internally racial equity? And then was there a policy or a specific data Mm -hmm. points or other things that I mentioned Mm -hmm. that, because I think the specificity is key because a lot of people are scratching their heads like, well, what does that mean? Thanks for that. So um, one example of a policy in the racial equity realm Um, with our governments, right? So you have this indicator tool that's essentially comes out once a year and essentially a scorecard to show how have you done over the last 12 months and delivering on these goals that you set. Okay. Um, Well, part of that, if we want to add that racial equity overlay and ensure that the policies and investments that are being made are actually going to advance racial equity, not exacerbate inequity. That requires you to, number one, have an equity officer that exists there in the jurisdiction. Ideally, that equity officer 
works directly, reports directly to the mayor or the county exec, um, and has a team. You know, I think it's important whether you're in private sector, government, nonprofit, you need a person, but then they need a team and then they need a budget to do the work that they do. And so you now can see out of the 20 or so jurisdictions we're tracking, about nine of those have racial equity officers that report up to the senior leadership within that jurisdiction. And then they are using racial equity impact assessments. So every piece of legislation that comes forward in front of the council or those commissioners, there's an assessment that's done to ensure, is this advancing racial equity or is this going to make things worse? Because we Mm -hmm. know this system we're all operating under right now is working as intended, right? (laughs) So when we say disrupt, we're really actually working to undesign the red line. We're actually working to bring opportunity Mm -hmm. to these communities that for years have been disgusted in. And so that's an example of Mm. a policy at the government level that just ensures who's going to be there keeping us accountable to this work. Because when that policy was created. That policy was created at a year when there was hundreds of other policies created, but then where's the accountability there? Yeah, it could be a zoning policy, mm-hmm. land use policy, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. internal and policy really, around something. You know, all with the goal of building it into your DNA. Mm. Because when we think of, you know, you think about next steps in this work, it's like, well, if you're doing the work and you're doing the work right, it should just, you should have built the muscle mm. when you are asking these questions, right? Asking these questions all the time. That's just now what we do. Well, how does this impact BIPOC communities? Is this going to, you know, uh, but I, but I think to, to start there, you have to put those systems in place. And even on the programming side for hand, you know, we do, we have our training, our standard kind of training, finance and development sessions, but then we still have a series of racial equity programming that we host every year because you're meeting everybody. You want to meet folks where they are. And if we're honest with ourselves, everybody's in a different part of the journey. Absolutely. And so continuing to have those sessions as well that are keeping people abreast or, or starting them in their journey. Like I said, it looks different. And, and it's definitely a learning journey. It's an ongoing, mm-hmm. continuous reflection because language changes, our understanding changes. Hopefully we evolve, right? Just in the past three years, our language around racial mm-hmm. equity has evolved exponentially. Mm-hmm. The things that we can say, or now it's a backlash, the things that we can't say, right? Um, right? It's just two steps <laughs> forward and one back. But talk a little bit. Give me like three sentences on what the indicator tool is and then how it came about and how people are using it to track and advance racial equity. Sure. Um, so we are in the fourth year of data and analysis for the housing indicator tool. We've released three different versions. So uh, just quick background. A couple of years ago, there was a company named Amazon that was you know, coming around, talking to different jurisdictions, saying, hey, we want to locate in your communities. 
to their credit, they ask the question, where are our employees going to live? It's a little mm -hmm. expensive here in the DMV. And, um, and so what you heard were elected officials making big promises and incentives that if you know, they were to come here, we would invest more dollars into our housing production trust fund, or we would, you know, start to leverage public land for the purposes of affordable housing. And um, Han was listening as those conversations were happening. And, in, and at the same time, our partners at the um, Greater Washington Partnership had released a report uh, that they commissioned that really, it didn't tell us much. We knew we had a housing crisis. We need, knew we needed to do more. Uh, so it wasn't that it was new information, but in the addendum of the report, there were these charts that were like by jurisdiction and how much housing would need to be developed if you really wanted to be successful there. Well, I called up Urban and said, well, what, what's going on here? And why isn't this in the front of the report? Um, and brought it up at some meetings. You know, there was a couple of meetings at hand. We're in lots of meetings, but there was a meeting with the Council of Governments that we had ongoing that would meet every two weeks. And I just brought it to the um, group to say, we should, we should think about this and said to the leadership at the Council of Governments, what do you think about adopting tar targets, having your members agree to these targets um, to really be you know, thoughtful and hold ourselves accountable to uh, meeting these goals? And so that was about 18 months of a mm. process and really gotcha. kind of advocating to them. Like I said, it helped that the Amazon conversations were happening it helped that we could point to uh, elected officials that had said they would do more if. Um, and so out, out of that, uh, the Council of Governments uh, adopted these targets. Now, okay. the Council of Governments can't mandate that their members. Right, but they can, can publish and, and, mm -hmm. and let everybody know whether they're meeting them right. at. So. And they can certainly partner with Han, who can say, well, we'll develop a tool to hold them accountable. Okay, and gotcha. we can do that. Um, and so out of that, we started working with Urban Institute and, um, and had an agreement with these jurisdictions that they were going to work in partnership with us because the data that you see there, they report out to us at the end of every year. Okay. Uh, they report that data out and then Urban does the analysis with hand and thinking about what are the specific indicators that we need to be able to you know, meet these goals. So it's an accountability tool based on That's data about, about how much affordable mm -hmm. housing that they are producing mm -hmm. a year, right? That's right. Okay. And it allows you to be able to compare what's happening in what your neighbors are doing um, across the bridge. I don't want to call out specific jurisdictions. I mean, healthy competition to build more affordable healthy housing, right? And, and, you know, you can no longer say, well, uh, you know, our state mandates prevent us from doing this. And it's like, well, your neighbor figured it out. They were able to do that. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, I'm sure. Like I, I live in Virginia, so the laws in Virginia versus Maryland. Well, Dylan, are, this and Dylan's yeah. rule that hey, you know we can do this work, guys. We have the tools. It's a lot of building the will. Yeah. Right. Building the will, and then again, um, it's great that they have adopted these targets, but then how do we hold ourselves accountable? And so um, we released, we were going to release the first version in 2020 and something called the pandemic happened. Right. And so we said, let's hold the data to the following year because it was noisy and wanted, you know, even for hand members that were going to be working with us in the advocacy, people were dealing with all things, the pandemic. And so right, we exactly. released the tool into 2021. And, um, you know, you fast forward to where we are today. We've released 2023's tool in April. So very happy and pleased that we are now um, tracking the Baltimore uh, region. So those jurisdictions are also now included. And and it's also just trying to get down to Richmond soon, right? I think we're, we're I mean, we're by. coming, baby. Twenty twenty four. Okay, good. We're going to be on the map. That's right. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit to talk about um, sort of our central question. So, mm-hmm. specifically in the housing arena to advance racial equity, give me one or two things you think that we need to be thinking about collectively as cities, as a nation. Like, how do we move forward? What are a couple things you think we can do to? advanced racial equity work in the housing arena? Well, I think number one is to, because Han, we are a membership association. So this is the work we're committed to doing. But I always, and we do the trainings and programs each year and we'll continue to do that. But I think for our members, whether you're in nonprofit or, you know, private sector or for government, um, I always tell people we can inspire you to do the work. We can give you, you know, overall toolkit, but then you need to leave this particular training and then go have that conversation with leadership and bring a consultant on what, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go about it, but you need to do that work within your respective organizations and ensure that this commitment is built into your DNA. And that's also critical because otherwise you end up, you know, you might have addition of a few BIPOC leaders to your board and think that that's check the box or Mm, really do the work of moving your organization forward. Yeah. You really need to do the work and, and that, and that work it's it's ongoing, but those first one, two years is tough work. Because it starts with acknowledgement of, okay, we haven't quite got it right. You know, we're, we're, be, we're not being mindful of, we're putting people into affordable homes, but wages haven't risen with housing costs. So when we are putting, structuring our re, um, resident services programming, are you really doing the work that's needed to support them, <laughs> building their careers, like really putting people in a position to thrive. Yeah. When you think about what that means, then we have to be thoughtful about all of the other challenges our communities are dealing with. Yeah, the safe, 
that's the stabilizing thing is housing, but it could be a jumping off point that's for right. other things or needs to be if, that's if, right. if people's lives really are going to change. That's right. And so, and that doesn't, you know, that can be seem overwhelming to an organization if for 30 something years you've done the work this way, but it's being, once you have that acknowledgement that we've got to do something different, then you lean into being creative. It could also be partnering with an organization that, no, um, you don't have the resident services, but you can partner with with an organization that brings that to your um, community. You can be thought more thoughtful in how you engage the people that live in your developments because they often have the ideas, <laughs> right? And can tell you no, exactly we'll what it issues, is yeah. that they need. Um, I think even as an organization that is working in this advocacy space, we are constantly at the table and thinking about how to be better partners with our communities. You saw this uprise of advocates across all different spaces, but in the housing space in particular, you know, we have what I call the changing faces of NIMBY. It used to be people that protested developments coming into their neighborhood just didn't want to live around certain people or felt like, you know, there's always these different kind of whistles that they send out, that it's more about pre- preserving the character of the neighborhood. But we knew what that was about. But what you see now Um, even more in the past three years, is the very communities that we are looking to serve. You know, sometimes BIPOC communities are saying, we don't want this affordable housing. Well, what's that about? You know, which means it's just an opportunity and a need, frankly, to sit down and get a little bit closer to these communities Mm -hmm. to say, hey, we're working. What's going on? Yeah. And, but why is that? And, you know, I've been in the housing space now um, going on 20-something years, and that's different for um, developers and, and, and hand members, you know, practitioners that yeah, are working. Yeah, I've, I've had a lot of historically Black neighborhoods because it becomes around, which is a valid concentrating Mm-hmm. affordable housing in neighborhoods mm-hmm. that have a already have a high concentration mm-hmm. of affordable housing mm-hmm. right and so how do we spread that out right and but also change our messaging or the reality of who is who, right who's living and who needs affordable housing everybody right and so yeah it becomes a challenge to work with people to change that narrative um yeah, and, but but you have you have to do it because then you also have electeds that are going to you know they're constantly they're responding to folks, yeah. these different priorities, and um, so it's more imperative now than ever to lean into those conversations and not um, back away because that's going to keep happening. Yeah. And I think, you know, you already said it, being really clear and educating on who is living in these um, communities, the very people that you need day to day, whether that's a daycare mm. provider or the person that drives the bus. I was about to say the bus driver, the um, garbage man. Right. I mean, we all certain, need affordable housing. Yeah. Right. I've heard elected officials tell me, well, 
we've got a new hospital coming and our doctors need housing. Well, the hospital also has to pay CNAs and janitors right. to clean that hospital and they need housing too. Um, so it's Low constantly, for real. Mm-hmm, constantly coming up with that case making and educating and re-educating, you know, because we've had wins in certain jurisdictions and then there's an election and it's oh, like, oh, that always disrupted. Now you have a council that's anti-development, even though we've adopted <laughs> these goals. <laughs> Every changing environment. So in the midst of that, tell me, um, as we close our conversation, tell me one thing that Hand is doing that you're really excited about or really mm-hmm. proud of I like just folks to highlight the work they're doing as as different models. So yeah, so I I think the housing indicator tool, and I encourage everyone to uh, visit our website and check it out because there's so many ways that you can get engaged. Um, even if it's not working through hand, the tools and resources are there for you to bring to your family members, to your churches. Because uh, so much of this starts with us and how um, we're moving in the space. So I'm really excited about all things Housing Indicator Tool because there's so much that we can continue to do there. As you mentioned, um, we're going to be bringing it to our Richmond, southern part of the footprint next year. Uh, we also continue to expand the indicators this year. Uh, we started including environmental justice indicators. Ooh, okay. We know all of these things are connected, connected right? right? Yeah. Uh, and then even thinking about more ways to be creative with the racial equity programming. Mm. Um, back to what we were just discussing, you know, after you finish the hand program, then what? So we're looking now to be more targeted with the training and they're going to do a series that's really targeted to the C-suite and decision makers so that you've built their muscle and have agreed, shared agreements when you come out of this series of trainings that they're gonna continue working on in their respective groups. And what is also, um, I'm also looking forward to, we have expanded our team. So much of what has happened over the last few years, it's been a small and mighty team of three. And we are now um, going to be, as of next month, a team of six. Okay. (laughs) Double. Listen, so that is, um, that's exciting to have, bring new energy and leadership into the space and um, just continuing to support the team and our our staff, our board, you know, all of the consultants. It takes a village to make hand work and um, just looking forward to continuing the work. Absolutely. So how can we find hand on the interwebs? Yes, on the (laughs) The interwebs. (laughs) www.handhousing.org. Um, you'll be able to find links to the tool, all of our different trainings. If you wanted to donate to ensure the sustainability of our work. Sign up um, for their newsletter so you can get the Racial Equity 5 yeah. that y'all put out. That's really good. So Racial news Equity and comes news, out resources. every two weeks. We've got Racial Equity Fast 5. And we now have a hit newsletter that's dedicated to all things um, the housing indicator tools. Okay, so, wonderful. Lots happening. Yeah.
Wonderful. Well, thank you, Heather, so much for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your wisdom as someone who's been doing on this racial equity journey for probably longer than the five years Han has been on it. But, you know, we call it different things these days. So thank you for your work. Y'all check out Han, check out the indicator tool as another model for keeping ourselves and our local governments accountable to build affordable housing. And thank you for the work that you're doing around building coalitions around creating great neighborhoods and communities because housing is just the cornerstone of that. So thanks, Heather. Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of The Intersection, which is the podcast of the Richmond Racial Equity Essays. I will see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.